Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Millions of years ago didn't exist, but 6,000 years ago, God created man. Shortly thereafter, God created woman. Insert obligatory joke about this is where the trouble began here. For nearly the entirety of those 6,000-ish years, we seem to be able to define what a human was, is, and will be. If you're curious, all the answers to those are a human. Since the time of Cain and Abel, the value of a human life has been questioned by some, but generally the majority of us have managed to agree that humans are humans no matter how small or big, or young, or old, or skinny, or to spare my feelings, husky, etc. But for some reason, over a relatively short few hundred years, we've now decided that humans weren't humans, little humans aren't humans, imperfect humans are not humans, and we definitely won't be humans forever. We're no longer homo sapiens, meaning wise man, we're now homo stultuses, meaning stupid man. On today's episode, first we're going to rattle them bones, then we're going to stare into the sweet southern face of evil, and finally we're going to have nightmares. So pull that x-ray machine out of the closet, prepare for some feels, and set the DVR for some happy shows, because the only humane thing to do now is, here we go. This segment isn't for everyone. This will only really be of interest to a specific demographic of people. The rest of you can, I don't know, go darn your socks or clean your navel, clean out your email, whatever. So this segment will only apply to you if you are an individual that has bones, specifically bones arranged and attached in the form of a skeleton. Okay. Now that we got rid of all the jellyfish and the sponges and the stretch Armstrongs, for those of you remaining, how many times have you looked at your body and first thought, uh, ugh, I don't know, maybe that's just me, but, but then also thought, hey, I wonder where my bones came from. Well, as luck would have it, found on SciTechDaily.com, headline, 500 million year old fossils solve a centuries old riddle in the evolution of life on Earth. Now, I, I guess the riddle is, Where did my bones come from? And the answer is, you know, shockingly, evolution. And that's just not really that funny of a riddle. And I think we can agree that I know funny. Now, would you believe, and I I think I find this single point maybe the most fascinating of all, and it's not even the point that's really focused on in this article, the origin of species, which wasn't the origin of the evolution theory, but it was arguably the work that gave evolution the major push into the mainstream. This book came out in 1859. This theory of evolution has been studied, propagated, pushed, and indoctrinated for 160 years plus now, and they didn't have a theory about where bones started. How how is that possible? There's a lot of bones out there. Okay, I guess 
look, they had all these theories of how all life came from lightning charged pond sludge with well-defined fairy tales. Sorry, I mean theories about how one thing became another thing with absolutely no proof, no transitionary creatures, no missing links, but they had no idea about bones. Okay, yeah, sure, that's, that's plausible. So what's their theory now? Well, apparently our bones came from underwater worm tubes. I mean, that's not the technical name for them, but, but that's what they are, or were, I don't know. Remember, these are over 500 million year old underwater worm tubes. So what does this article tell us? Well, during the Cambrian explosion, which as we all know was from 550 million to 520 million years ago, a massive number of things evolved, including, quote, the first animals to build hard and robust skeletons, which appeared suddenly in the fossil record in a geological blink of an eye. Now, what do they mean by suddenly? Well, it means suddenly. It means it just uh, wasn't, and, 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 then, and then it was. So, put simply, they have no missing link. They have no transitionary fossils. So, whether they say it or not, this is punctuated equilibrium, which is basically no evolution, no evolution, no evolution, boom, a newly evolved thing. So apparently in the Yunnan province in China, quote, an exceptionally well-preserved collection of fossils were discovered. This treasure trove was discovered by PhD student Guangzhou Zhang. And what Mr. Zhang, well, I think Mr. Zhang, is Guangzhou a male name? Let's say it is. So he found four specific specimens of, oh, aspera. Uh, which are basically tubes with some stinging tentacle things at the one opening, which is classified as the mouth, and then a gut that apparently makes up most of the innards of this tube. The gut, however, is uh, only one way, as in the mouth is the only opening into this tube. So, not sure how that exactly worked, but let's be glad we evolved with not only a mouth opening, but also an evacuation port. Otherwise, ugh. I do kind of wish I still had the stinging mouth tentacles, though. Those would be sweet. I'm sure they'd come in handy. Now, this is not a worm. It's completely different from a worm. I can't even believe that you'd think it was a worm. They give reasons why it's not a worm, and it really doesn't matter, because it's basically sort of a worm. Now, the study, quote, shows that these simple animals were among the first to build the hard skeletons that make up much of the known fossil record. The unique feature of this tube worm is that its tube was made of a calcium phosphate, which is something that apparently makes up our teeth and bones. However, quote, use of this material to build skeletons has become more rare among animals over time. Oh, well, very interesting. I'm sure they have a well-documented uh, thing. I also find it interesting that once again, as all evolutionists do, they give the process of evolution, you know, the process of theoretical beneficial mutations and survival of the fittest, they give this process an intelligence when it suits their purpose. Per their statement, these worm tubes were among the first to build the hard skeletons. So either the tube thought, I should use calcium phosphate to build me a sort of skeleton, or it thought, hey evolution, how about a calcium phosphate skeleton? Can you make that happen? <laughs> Hashtag evolution. 
So why haven't they made this connection before? Well, and here's kind of the kicker here, because these little suckers are made of mostly soft tissue. Finding good, usable fossils of soft tissue things is uncommon and relatively difficult. Remember, a fossil, unlike what we're kind of led to believe, is something that must be covered and cut off from oxygen quickly, otherwise things decay and get eaten. And so we do find fossils of things like jellyfish, but they're rare. The soft tissue would either decay or get eaten quickly, be gone. That's a problem with our tube worms. They find fossils, but not with preservation of the soft bits. So it makes these found things hard to classify. But again, like I said, this is the kicker in the article. Mr. Zhang Zhang found one, two, three, four, four well-preserved fossils. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah, he literally found four 500-plus million-year-old fossils with the soft tissue still intact. Now, the article isn't clear if the soft tissue was still soft or if it was just well-fossilized. And yes, again, finding soft tissue is very rare. But with what appears to be increasing frequency, archaeologists are finding hundreds of millions of years old soft tissue that's still actually spongy and pliable. Now, if you want a miracle, that's definitely got to be it. Hundreds upon hundreds of millions of years old is still soft. Now, I'm not sure if that's the case in this article. From the way it was written, I could read it both ways. In whichever case it is, a professor from Oxford said, quote, This really is a one-in-a-million discovery. These mysterious tubes are often found in groups of hundreds of individuals, but until now, they have been regarded as problematic fossils because we had no way of classifying them. Thanks to these extraordinary new specimens, a key piece of the evolutionary puzzle has been put firmly in place. Ooh, a firmly placed puzzle piece. Now, you know, if I took thousands or millions of puzzles and jumbled them all together, mixed them up very thoroughly... I'll just bet that I could find pieces that I could firmly put in place that have nothing to do with each other. But they fit perfectly. Just because they found well-preserved worm tubes with self-directed tube skeletons doesn't mean that these had anything to do with the evolution of the skeleton. I mean, if evolution was even a viable theory, which it's not. It's, it's so not. Now, what they know from these fossils is that these things would have looked very similar to modern-day schizophrenic jelly... No, 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 I'm sorry. Schizophrenic jellyfish. Um, but they had this skeleton, whereas the jellyfish does not. They also know that these tentacles were stinging tentacles, and it would have extended outside the mouth, but would be able to be retracted back into the tube so as to avoid predators. Now, I'm not sure how they know that. My guess is that they just asked various worm tubes today what they thought this ancient worm tomb did. As Christians, we're told that we're to live by faith. After the resurrection of Jesus, when Thomas finally made his appearance after doubting his fellow apostles, Jesus showed him the nail holes in his hands and the gash in his side, and Thomas said, My Lord and my God, to which Jesus replied, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, this is who Christians are today. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead bodily, physically, then you are blessed because you have believed despite the fact that you have not seen him. This is faith. We are to have faith. 
Now, one of the most oft-used arguments against the Christian and against Christianity is when there is something we can't really explain that we must take by faith, and we say that this is where God did it. This has been termed the God of the gaps or God of the gaps fallacy. The problem is that many, at this point in time, maybe most Christians, aren't knowledgeable enough to be able to accurately relate biblical accounts, especially if it's outside the basic stories that we learn in Sunday school, or they aren't confident enough in the actual evidences or proofs that have been uncovered over time that support the biblical accounts, or they aren't knowledgeable enough about the secular arguments against the Bible, or for whatever reason, they are just not confident in their own apologetic ability. So for too long, and probably far too often, the phrase, um, God did it, is used as a cop-out. Now, this phrase may be accurate, but if we just expect the unbelieving world to drop to their knees and beg us for mercy, cowering under the onslaught of our impenetrable defense of, um, God did it, well, we're foolish. This to the unbelieving world is nothing but a foolish argument made by a silly myth-believing person who needed to create a magical sky god in order to explain the flashing lights and loud booms in the sky. The reality is, in, in some cases, there is literally no other way for us to explain something. I do believe that God uses natural processes to bring about miracles in some cases. Take the crossing of the Red Sea. The sea was parted after a strong wind blew all night long. Wind, natural. Force of the wind, natural. But for water to pile up on both sides and the ground to be dry in order to cross, natural processes? Well, yeah but used in a miraculous way to accomplish a miracle. There are arguments from the natural world for each of the plagues brought on Egypt directly prior to the Exodus. Now, I think many, if not most, are a stretch at best, but but there are some that try to make the case. We also have things that we can prove scientifically. For instance, the account of Noah and the ark. Enough time passed to build the ark. The ark was plenty big enough to house all the kinds of animals. But then there are some things that we just can't explain. How did all the kinds of animals come to Noah? How did the water turn into wine? How did manna just appear overnight? How did Lazarus come back to life? These are cases where we are forced to shrug our shoulders and say, I really have no idea, but I know that God did it. Christians shouldn't be afraid of using this unsatisfying, to the unsaved at least, argument when it applies. And even in cases like the Red Sea, like I said, natural processes were used, but in an unnatural way. And it's because God did it that way. So the unsaved world, the so-called scientific community, well, they mock this concept, but they make the same argument only using capital T time as their God and capital E evolution as their creator. At any point where they get stuck, they either say, uh, time did it, possibly even adjusting the overall length of their timeline to make it longer, never shorter, always longer, or adjusting where everything fits on their timeline. And when it comes to the Cambrian explosion, for instance, they would rather believe that, uh, oh, evolution did it. Because suddenly, in a layer of rock, a massive number of different kinds or species of creatures just appears. The, the theory of evolution would argue against this possibility as it defies the god of time. But the creator, evolution, did it this way. So who are we to question it? At the same time, the much more obvious answer, a documented global flood, a catastrophic event across the entire world, buried a massive amount of mostly aquatic creatures and entombed them in mud. 
Is it more logical, is it more sane to say there's an all-powerful God that used nature supernaturally to flood the entire globe in a massively destructive manner, causing the burial of these creatures under the same layer of mud, creatures that he created about 1,500 years prior? Or is it more likely that the creator, evolution, that hadn't done a whole lot for hundreds of millions of years, just one day forgot to take his ADD meds and went nuts creating just, just everything? I know how I'd vote, not just from the standpoint that I'm a Christian, as way too many Christians believe in the absolutely unbiblical, unchristian view of evolution. Now, see, I choose that magic sky god, you know, the one we're told about in the Bible, the one and only god, because as difficult as that concept is to fathom, that is the only logical, plausible explanation. The evolution theory is not only not probable, it's not even plausible. It's not logical. It's a junk theory. But this evolution of the gaps is literally the entirety of science's theory. Most of us have bones. We can all agree on that. We know for absolute indisputable fact that we all came from supercharged pond scum, right? We all, we all agree on that, right? And we can all agree that scum has no bones. So how did we get bones? Um, evolution did it over a long period of time. Remember, that's science. But an all-powerful creator God created some of his creation with an internal structure of bones for a variety of reasons. Oh, well, that's just fantasy. But science is supposed to be a logical system of probable answers to the issues being analyzed. The idea that God did it at least has an intelligent, intentional force. God did it makes logical sense. Time did it. That's a big nothing. No intelligence, no intention. In fact, no power to create anything at all. The only power one could argue that time has is the power to destroy. But even there, it relies on entropy to do the destruction. Time is just the carrier, the backbone, if you will, that entropy utilizes in order to do what it does. The concept that just because a tube worm is determined to be a less intelligent, less complex form of life, therefore it was evolved earlier than fish or mammals or humans, well, that's just an unfounded assumption. Likewise, just because something is buried deeper in the ground than other things, therefore it's older, is another unfounded assumption. This is not science. In fact, it's a very elementary or even infantile type of theory. It's akin to giving a preschooler a bunch of blocks and telling him to line them up smallest to biggest. Size has nothing to do with age. Complexity has nothing to do with age. Where it's found has nothing to do with age. Those are all just observable facts. They, they literally tell you nothing other than what they just tell you directly. The rest is simply creative writing. So just because a tube worm is smaller, is less complex, it's deeper in the ground than humans or a lot of other animals, and it happens to have a solid supporting structure made up of some of the same stuff that bones are made of, I mean, that, that means nothing. It just means that it exists. Anything beyond that is simply a story. When I decided on the podcast name of The Logical Christian, I, I was actually shocked that it was available. I, I searched multiple podcast hosts and I couldn't find anyone else with it, so I grabbed it. The humanist assumption is that it's impossible to be both logical and a Christian. If you believe in that ancient book, you must be a crazy kooky nut wacko. But I maintain that unless you're a Christian, it's not possible to be truly logical. 
Now, sure, because of the common grace of God, because God has graciously allowed those that are not his children to borrow logic and use it, there are logical non-Christians, but only to a point. Then in order to deny God, they must then step outside of logic. And this is what we see with this evolution theory, with solid worm tubes being the father of bones. The only way to understand where bones came from and why similar structures that perform similar functions are made of similar stuff is to believe that God did it that way. So why did he do it that way? I don't know. That's not something we know beyond the the functionality that we can observe from it. And although that doesn't give us all the answers, that is, in fact, logical. It's time for Christians to stop shying away from science, to stop just ceding logic to the godless scientific community. Christians are the owners of logic. We are the owners of true science, discovery, and reason. Uh, It's time to push back when someone says, Hey, did you see they figured out our bones originated from worm tubes? It's our job to point out the illogical and frankly silly nature of this theory and redirect the discussion back to the Bible back to the truth, back into the world of logic. Words matter. I'm sure we've all heard that simple phrase more times than we could count, right? And yes, using the wrong words for the wrong situation typically lands us in some hot Sasquatch. (laughs) See what I did there? Eh, It's true that, that words do matter. But I think even more than that, definitions of words matter. Completely off topic. But bringing in a little theology, because, you know, why not? I've never seen a rabbit trail that didn't interest me. Back in the olden days, the King James Version of the Bible was compiled. And in that, in Genesis 1.28, it says, speaking of Adam and Eve, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Now, for us today, the word replenish, per Merriam-Webster's, means to fill or build up again. If you go back to Webster's 1828 dictionary, the word replenish was defined as to fill. Incidentally, it actually also gives Genesis 128 as an example of the usage of the word replenish. Now, back in the King James era, it also meant simply to fill. So when modern man, who desperately wants evolution to be true, reads replenish, he wants to say that that means the earth was populated before, and now God wants these two evolved humans, who he decided to breathe into, to fill it up again. But the Hebrew word, malah, is defined by Strong's lexicon as to fill. When God tells him to replenish the earth, he's literally saying, go fill it up, with the implication that this is the first filling. See, definitions matter. One other theological point of interest, one that will divide churches and families, if you're not careful, sometimes even if you are, the old argument of Calvinism versus Arminianism. What does the doctrine of election mean? Well, let me lay my cards on the table. I would consider myself to be a Calvinist. One of the argument verses, one of the go-tos to dispute my interpretation of the scriptures is John 3.16, specifically the word world. So the verse says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The dispute is that clearly God loved the entire world, everyone in it, so this offer is wide open for anyone, whosoever will, right? Well, from a human standpoint, from what I'm told to do as a Christian, defining world in this manner, it's fine. As I don't know who the elect are. I don't know who's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So to me, it is literally whosoever will. But is that what world means in this verse? 
Well, the Hebrew word for the word world, I'm going to get tongue-tied here, is cosmos. This can be interpreted as the planet as a whole, only parts of the planet, the entire human population, only parts of the human population, and it can be used in a literal or a figurative sense. So you see the number of combinations and permutations we're dealing with here for one English word. Now, if you look at John 3.17, we see the word world used three times, rapid fire. That verse says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So, does the word world mean all of humanity, as the argument is to interpret it in John 3.16? Well, okay. For God sent not his Son into the world. Well, this use is clearly used literally in the sense that he was physically sent to parts of the globe and some of humanity at a certain point in time. It's figurative from the standpoint that by extension, he was sent to the entire globe and the entirety of humanity crossing all of time. Moving on, we have, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. Okay, maybe loosely figuratively used as the planet, but we can all agree that this use is talking about humanity. So is this all humanity or is this just some of humanity? Well, Jesus pretty much condemned the Pharisees, right? We know that Judas was condemned. We know that in general, a portion, likely a large portion of humanity is condemned. So the mission that Jesus was tasked with was not to be the judge on earth, but we know that he did judge some while on earth. So at best, this is a subset of humanity. And the last phrase, but that the world through him might be saved. Well, we know the globe isn't going to be saved. It'll be burned up and then rebuilt. And we also know that the entire world of humanity will not be saved, as many will reject God willfully and happily and will be cast into hell. So this use of the word world can only mean a literal subset of humanity. So knowing this, how do we interpret John 3.16? Well, God does show his love to the entire human population through his common grace, air, water, food, shelter, uh, family, friends, happiness, even things like allowing the unsaved to use gravity and the laws of physics and logic. I mean, look at the plagues of Egypt. God made it dark everywhere except for the Israelites. See, God is not bound by the so-called laws of nature. He owns the laws. He's the lawgiver. So he's not bound to allow the unsaved even the light of the sun, if he so chose. But he loves his image bearers, that even the worst of the worst are allowed the common graces. But the implication in this verse is that God sent Jesus to die to cover the sins of the world. So those that believe will be saved by this sacrifice. So if world means everyone through all of history, then does that mean that Jesus paid for their sins, but it didn't work? Or when he got rid of the sins, humanity was more powerful than he and able to go retrieve them? Because hell is the eternal punishment for the unrepentant sins committed by a human who sinned against a perfectly holy and just God. So if Jesus paid for those sins, how does anyone end up in hell paying for those sins? The more literal, and I believe more correct interpretation, is that Jesus died for the elect. I know everyone hates that term, but it's in the Bible. And that's for those that God gave to him before time, before creation. As I said, This doesn't change one thing that I'm called to do. I don't have the book. So from my viewpoint, everyone is free game. Everyone is potentially one of the elect. So as I am going, I am to tell the good news. 
The definition of the word cosmos or world is one of the biggest arguments we find and directly affects your view on the sovereignty of God. Definitions matter. Now, that was a long way to go to get to the article, but I feel this was important to point out these subtleties of words, and hopefully you found it at least somewhat thought-provoking. So let's get to our story, or in old King James English, maybe let's re-go to our story, meaning to go to it for the first time. Found on People Magazine via Yahoo.com, headline, Former Ms. South Carolina Forced to Carry Unviable Fetus for Seven Weeks. It was like a dagger to the heart. That was her quote. Instantly you connect with a very wholesome image. Former Ms. South Carolina. Now that literally has nothing to do with the story, other than it makes her more important, maybe, in the eyes of People magazine than you and I, the basic commoner. As for the rest of the headline, forced to carry an unviable fetus. I mean, what image does that conjure up in your mind? I tend to be of the, I don't know, cynical nature. So when I read this headline, first my eyes roll, then the first thought I have is, and eh, no, she wasn't. You'd be surprised that if you start by stating the disbelieving negative to most news headlines, more often than not, you'll be right. Are you excited to see if I was right? <laughs> oh, I knew you were. So here's the gist. Jill, who is now 35, was Miss South Carolina back in 2013. Time to let it go, Jill. She's still attractive, per the pictures, but those days are gone, nine years removed now. So, congrats, but who cares? Well, she's married now to an old man, five years her senior, 40-year-old Matt. Well, the story starts with Jilly Bean and Matt's reactions to the legally correct overturning of the completely unconstitutional road decision. Quote, My husband walks out of the room and he is beat red furious. We said to each other, We cannot believe this is happening thinking of our daughter and her future. Now, they were married in April 2021. They found out they were pregnant with, I believe, their first and only child, a girl, in April of 2022. So the daughter they were so lovingly thinking of, you know, about her future, right to kill, her own child, while in the womb or whenever, was still just a little bun in the oven, still in the womb herself. Remember, Roe was overturned on 62422. That's a a date you really need to remember. That's a monumental day in our history, 6-24-22. So their daughter was somewhere around the 12-week range of development at the time they were, you know, so angry. And we find this out a little bit later. Now, angry because, like most of the mouth breathers in this country, they have no idea what that decision actually meant or did. Angry because the media told them that they were supposed to be angry by this. Now, oddly, just a short paragraph after their anger, we find out that, quote, Jill describes herself as a lifelong Republican and Christian. I was raised in a very conservative family and have always considered myself aligned with the Republican Party. But I have always been pro-choice. We do come from a conservative Christian background, but we also come from a place of empathy and compassion and non-judgment. Oh, oh, uh-oh, oh boy. Words and definitions. <laughs> How can you align with the Republican Party that has a platform of pro-life and yet be pro-choice? It seems like you're not the, uh, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer there to begin with. And she's very conservative and a Christian, but is pro-baby murder. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. 
As for being an empathetic Christian, okay, that is a thing. You would not be a good Christian counselor, as counselors should never be empathetic. They can and probably should be somewhat sympathetic, but never empathetic. And she comes from a point of non-judgment. Oh, that's nice. Well, first, that's a lie. Uh, if she walked down a dimly lit street at night on her own, and there were a group of, and oh, let's just go all the way to the quote-unquote extreme end here, let's say a group of persons of color drinking and shouting and doing whatever down that street, would she just walk on through the middle of them, not a care in the world? Or would her judgmentalism start kicking in? Yeah, I thought so. See, we make judgments dozens, if not hundreds of times a day. And here's a judgment call I'm making. Jill and Matt, they are not Christians. Now, I believe that she and they probably believe they are. I can't say it for sure. I don't know their heart. That's not for me to know. But either she's not a Christian, as nothing she's describing would be indicative of a knowledge of the Bible, a love for the laws of God, an understanding of Jesus, or a heart for being a Christian— Either that or she's a very deceived, very immature, slurping up the sweetened, condensed milk of those the likes of Stephen Furtick and Andy Stanley. Now, I'm not sure which one she is or he is, but their worldview is badly askew. It's okay, though. This article gets worse. At their eight-week scan, all looked good. Due date of December 27th, a Christmas baby. Twelve-week scan, all was great. This is when they found out that they were having a girl. But then... Okay, and let me be clear here. I'm not making light of this at all. Sarcasm over for now. At the 18-week scan, they saw that the heart was not developing normally. Apparently, the child was diagnosed as having hypoplastic left heart syndrome, HLHS for short. Jill had a friend that had a baby diagnosed with that same issue. Luckily, her friend was able to, quote, make the difficult decision to end her pregnancy within a few days of receiving the diagnosis. <laughs> oh, well, Control-Alt-Delete. Let's start over again, I guess, right? So remember, the headline said that she was forced to carry for seven weeks an unviable fetus. Okay, let's start there. It's time for us to take back the word fetus. Fetus is literally Latin for offspring or unborn child. Interestingly enough, if you go to Google Translate and type in fetus, it will auto-detect the word as English, not Latin, and give you an English return of, uh, of fetus. If you change the input language to Latin, it will still give you an English return of fetus. <laughs> I see they've fixed that since the last time I checked. As the last time I looked at it, it translated the Latin to the English offspring. Uh, but we can't have that, not on Google. So, she was forced to carry this unviable baby for seven weeks. Well, let's start with the fact that this was not a miscarriage. This baby was alive. So, it's more accurate to say that she was forced to continue her pregnancy for seven more weeks. But was she forced? See, at that time, South Carolina had enacted a six-week abortion ban with, you know, the standard exceptions. That has since gone through court battles, etc. I believe right now it's sitting at 22 weeks as the legislature is deadlocked as to what to do. But at that time, she wasn't able to just saunter on down to the local murder mill and get this little defective child dealt with. Now, her OBGYN, or as Obama called it a few years back, her OB-gyne, and yeah, that's not a joke, that's how he read it off the teleprompter, sent her to specialists at the Medical University of South Carolina, where they ran some tests and told them that if, quote, termination was on the table, eh, that they couldn't help her with it. Not anymore. You know, because of the absolute evil of those that don't want babies to be murdered. So the doctors, 
Remember words and definitions here. Quote, advise Jill and Matt to wait four weeks for another scan to see the severity of the condition and whether additional complications existed. See, advised is apparently code language for, you better keep that child for another month or else. You know, forced. The author breaks in at this point to point out the fact that before this row reversal, people had the, quote, freedom of choice to decide what was best for them, you know, right after the diagnosis. Not to have to wait an entire month and do more tests, you know, like animals. Now keep in mind, other states, the closest being all the way up in Virginia, still had abortion choice that could have removed this burden from their, well, from her womb. But they decided to wait that month. They decided to wait that month. Well, in the next appointment, they found out that in addition to the HLHS, she also had aortic atresia, probably saying that wrong, which appears to be a fusing of valves in the heart, restricting the blood moving into the aorta. This seems to be a not uncommon associated condition related to the HLHS. Now, I have a hard time believing this was yet another dagger in Jill's heart. If the doc was worth anything, he or she would have told her what other potential complications may exist. This shouldn't have been a shock. So going back to the headline, recall this fetus, or as we refer to it, this baby, was unviable. Well, let's see how they define unviable. To quote the article, quote, While cases vary in terms of severity, it is incurable and can be fatal, without several surgeries at and after birth, and it often requires a heart transplant. Okay, okay, wait, okay. Per Merriam-Webster's, unviable is defined as incapable of growth or development. Well, per that definition, any baby born and left laying in a cold room on their own is unviable. In fact, humanity in general is basically unviable without a number of interventions. If people didn't produce and manufacture food, I'm unviable. You think I'm a hunter? <laughs> no, and I'd rather die than grow and eat vegetables. Ugh. Plus, how in the world do you make a Snickers? I These are important questions. But per their definition, the word shouldn't be unviable. It should be inconvenient. Jill said that she and Matt decided at this point to look into the future. Quote, The doctors just kept talking about the surgeries. They basically explained that every child with HLHS, no matter if it's the least severe case or the most severe case, will have to have three open-heart surgeries at a very young age. The first open-heart surgery happens the first week of life. The second open-heart surgery happens at six months old, and then there's a third open-heart surgery, and eventually a wait for a transplant. And if they're lucky enough to get a heart, and if their body accepts it, then every 10 years after that, they're back on the heart transplant list because hearts only last 10 to 15 years. So even best-case scenario was still a very grim outlook. Then, and trust me, this is where I'd like to throw down a few swears. Uh, she goes on to say, quote, We decided that the best thing for our particular case and our particular daughter, Ivy Grace, was to just give her the most peaceful possible way to heaven and to be healed and to be free and never feel a moment's pain. Right, you'd excuse a few swears here, right? I, I won't. I want to. I won't. First of all... How dare you name your child that you've decided to murder? You don't have that right. You've given up the right to act like you're the victim, like you're a parent, like you're the savior of this child. Because they don't want to be inconvenienced by the struggles this child would go through. They decide that it would be better to have their child ripped apart in the womb and disposed of. Sorry she wasn't perfect mom, not really her fault, but you know, you can just execute her for it anyway. 
Now, the doctors literally said that the second surgery would be at six months old. I don't know, that seems viable to me. And then a third surgery, then a heart, then a new heart every 10 years. I mean, sure, not ideal, not easy, not without struggle and pain, but that sure seems pretty darn viable to me. I sure hope Matt never has anything greater than a hangnail that causes him not to be viable. Jill just pull the plug, apparently, or vice versa. Or is their human value more because they were given the chance and all things that it took for them to live? Maybe the fact that she was a Miss South Carolina does come into play here. Maybe her child wouldn't be able to follow in mom's footsteps. Maybe that, huh? <sighs> deep breath. Now, luckily, this deep, Christian, conservative family had family and friends in the medical community to help them in their next steps, desperately trying to find a state that would kill their baby over 24 weeks or six months old at this point. Speaking of viable, let's not speak of the fact that the four youngest preemies to survive were 21 weeks developed. Apparently, the hospital wouldn't help them. Jill said, quote, It was almost like, you have to schedule all this. You have to go and figure it all out. You'll forgive me if I openly weep for them and all the inconvenience they went through to kill their baby that would have caused them inconvenience. Why can't they just have an easy life like God promised them? And yes, I guarantee they're one of the best life now crowd. I have no doubt of this at all. Luckily, they found a murder mill in D.C., but horror of horrors, they had to wait two more weeks. And poor, poor Jill, quote, Every time I felt her move was like a dagger to the heart and the mental toll. I was grieving the loss of my child while still carrying her and also waiting to be taken care of so that I could start the healing process. Are we getting the picture here? Do we understand who is the most important individual here? Well, she got the procedure at 25 weeks and it was so hard for Jill. Quote, I had to get on a plane after giving birth. <laughs> having full-on contractions because my uterus was shrinking. The most excruciating thing I've ever done has been getting on an airplane to travel home the day after I delivered. All of these things are logistically insane. Delivered? Del delivered? You mean had your child ripped to pieces while very much alive and capable of feeling every bit of that pain and extracted from your evil womb? She goes on, quote, and I know for a fact that the place that I went to that had a two-week wait now has a six-week wait. They can't wait that long. You know, because then the child will be too old to kill per the law. So Jill, who I have thoughts about, and Matt, who I also have thoughts about, well, they started the Ivy Grace Project. When <laughs> my anger grows by the second. Uh, it's to bring to light the importance of abortion to those dealing with a baby that has, quote, fetal anomalies. And to just put a nice bow on the evil woman that Jill is, at least in my eyes, she says, quote, but I want to be clear, there are a lot of people walking this earth with HLHS. There are a lot of mamas out there who have kids with HLHS, and I do not want to alienate them in any way. Those children, their stories are supposed to be written. They're supposed to be where they are, and that is their story. This just happens to be my experience and my story. Well, Jill, your story paints you as an evil murderer, more interested in living a life without inconvenience, without trouble, without complications. Monster! 
This is your life, after all, and how dare we judge you for selfishly murdering your baby, a baby that you absolutely admit over and over was completely viable, was very much alive, facing difficulties, needing a family that loved her no matter what. But this isn't about the baby, is it? This is all about Jill. As for Matt... Dude, sorry about your testicles. Does Jill allow you to at least visit them on occasion? How this male by gender can call himself a man, I have no idea. He's a piece of garbage. Sorry, not sorry. He's supposed to be the fighter, the protector of his family. Either he abdicated his role, simply turning it over to Jill to make all the decisions, or more likely, he wasn't interested in the inconvenience either. Yeah, not a man, Matt, not a man. What this article should have been titled is, Woman who was Miss South Carolina a long time ago and still wants to act as such was slightly inconvenienced for a few weeks through the necessity of carrying her unborn daughter, one that would have created additional and long-lasting inconvenience through her lack of being born perfectly as they navigated the logistics of killing her. It's all about me. That's the quote I would have used. A little long for a title needs cleaning up, I admit that, but I think that it would have been more accurate of a headline, you know, if words and definitions mean anything anymore. The headline they chose was pretty much a stack of lies used for sensationalism purposes for those that only bothered to read the headline prior to frothing at the mouth. Now clearly this article gets, well not one, but many of my goats. All this said, what we do know is that children are a gift from God. Beyond that, there are no promises given. We're not promised perfection. We're not promised perfection in pregnancy or birth or raising them or even their decisions as adults, just that children are given to us by God. We also know that the forgiveness of God, as far as we're concerned, is available to all, even Matt and Jill. My hope, literally, truly, my hope is for these two selfish, delusional people is that they will actually crack open the Bible and read, I don't know, all of the words. And although I hope and pray that they will finally come to a saving knowledge of God, repent and place their faith in the God of the Bible, if they do this, oh, I don't envy the guilt that will just wash over them. If at some point they are actually saved, the realization of what they've done will be unbelievably oppressive. Thankfully, the blood of Christ is not limited by the type of sins committed. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There are no caveats to this. Sadly, looking at the Ivy Grace Project, it doesn't appear that Matt and Jill are on any road to actual biblical understanding and the saving grace and forgiveness offered by Jesus. Kind of a difficult article and a difficult review, and my blood pressure's up a little bit, I'll admit that. But to end on a high note, although this is not an excuse and it is not a justification, although some people, including Jill, would like to use it as such, the fact is that this little girl is now in heaven. She is with her creator right now. And I choose to believe that Jesus gave her her actual name personally. Well, we've finally done it. We've played with it so long, we've broken it. We've all been warned about this, but did we listen? No, no, we didn't. And now, well, it's not all over, but it's all a mess. Frankly, I blame you. And kids these days, and the government, and big oil, big pharma, definitely big tech. I know it's not my fault. So what am I talking about? Found on studyfinds.org, headline, Humans may evolve to have deformed bodies, second eyelid, from overusing technology. See? See? <laughs> there it is. We've, well, you've broken humans. You want your precious cellular telephones and various handheld technologies and screens, computerized calculation machines, and to run all over my lawn like a bunch of hoodlums? <clears throat> 
Sorry, slipped into my near future self there for a second. But because we clutch onto our cell phones and stare at screens all day, well, we've, you've, now deformed humanity and given us a second set of eyelids. Just what I need, two sets of eyelids. I hope you're happy. Now, this site makes it very clear that they don't take a position on anything they post. They just repost stuff they find, so you can go there and comment and agree or disagree as adamantly as you like. They're just fine with whatever. So a research project was commissioned by tollfreeforwarding.com, which is exactly what it sounds like. From their site, it's a company founded in 2002 as an international telecommunications provider that has an, quote, immense inventory of international phone numbers. Now, it's not immediately clear why they commissioned a research study, but <laughs> whatever, I don't, I don't care. Anyway, they wanted to predict what would happen to humanity based on a report that says the typical American uses the internet for seven hours a day. The findings resulted in Mindy, a future human, designed through computer simulations in combination with a 3D designer to account for all the issues the use of technology creates for the human body over time. And let me just say this, poor... Poor Mindy. She has a hunchback and arch neck with larger neck muscles, termed tech neck. Her hands are formed in a permanent grasping claw, as in how you'd hold your cell phone. Her arms are stuck at a permanent 90-degree bend and no longer able to straighten or bend fully, or maybe not at all anymore. Her skull is thicker, her brain is smaller, and she has a second set of inner eyelids. We'll come back to why all of these things will apparently happen in just a moment. But I think poor Mindy could have done some things to help herself out just a little bit. I, I just see no reason why the overuse of technology and the subsequent evolutionary deformation of humanity has caused Mindy to shave her head, leaving only the G.I. Jane or Jada Pinkett Smith shadow of stubble behind. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I went there. I hope I don't get slapped. And I'm not sure why Mindy can't or won't wear a bra. Uh, maybe she didn't want the strap showing since she's wearing a tank top, but she should really rethink her decision. I'm sure they make a bra that can strap over a hunch, especially since this is the future and we've evolved to hunchbacks as a general rule. One would think the brazier technology would have kept up, but... Uh, who knows? I wonder if what we would consider a normie was born, would he or she, or whatever of the infinite genders it they is by that time in our future, be considered a freak, like that one Twilight Zone episode? Eh, different topic, different day. Okay, so this study is based on the seven hours of use per day of our devices, such as smartphones, laptops, and TVs. And I want you to keep in mind, as I describe why these changes are predicted to take place, that this is literally what they're predicting evolution will do based on the computer model and the designer. The hunchback and arched neck come from our terrible body positions, constantly changing from looking down at your phone back up to look at the laptop or computer screen. And the tech neck is the enlarging of the neck muscles in order to limit the damage that's being done by constantly looking up and down. They've grown, of course, in order to support our thick skulls and smaller brains in these awkward positions. The Clenching, clawed hand is from grasping the cell phone, with a curled thumb from using it to tap out texts. The permanently bent elbows are from holding your devices up, or from having them bent to type on a keyboard. 
The skull is predicted to thicken, as I mentioned, in order to help it protect the brain from all of those radio waves from using your phone. But there's also less brain to protect, as that'll shrink because we're just sedentary humans. And some studies have apparently proven or implied that sedentary lifestyles lead to smaller brains. As for the second eyelid, uh, yeah, either, either we'll get a second eyelid or, or the lens of the eye may evolve in order to block out excessive light or at least excessive blue light. Why? Well, because blue light is apparently what keeps us awake by stimulating the brain or something. I don't know. It's considered the bad light, I guess. No mention of the buzz cut and the brawler situation. I'm assuming that's also a product of evolution. Now, I only say that as sort of a half-joking thing, as a haircut and fashion choice resulting from evolution makes just about as much sense as literally any of these other things. What I find interesting about science eh, and the theory of evolution is that in the textbooks, the scientific studies, the lectures, the media, the computer models, evolution can literally be, act, and do whatever's needed, however it needs to happen, for whatever situation is thrown at it. Let me back up for a moment and explain this. The actual theory says that beneficial mutations happen to the genetic code, resulting in something, some new trait, occurring in the offspring of something that makes it slightly different and better than the original something. This is a gain of information. These must be beneficial mutations because... The second part of evolution is survival of the fittest. Mutations happen all the time right now, never beneficial. And if you were to put a creature without the mutation and a creature with a mutation in a situation where only one can survive, the non-mutated creature will win nearly every time. There's always a chance of a fluke. So this mutation must give the mutated creature a better chance of survival than the non-mutated. Then this mutation must be passed to the offspring, assuming the creature with the mutation can still mate and produce offspring with the species that it was starting as. This also assumes and requires the beneficial mutation to pass to the next generation or, or even further mutate into the next generation. This is nearly as improbable as the development of the beneficial mutation itself, as DNA tends to repair itself in the next generation when combined with a non-mutated genetic code, almost like it was designed to do. Evolution states that these beneficial mutations passing from generation to generation, accumulating greater and or more mutations, will eventually change something from one kind of creature to another. And that apparently this new something still has the ability to mate with something else to produce offspring like it now. Or there's another mutant of equal or similar mutantness of the opposite, dare I say it, gender for it to mate with in order to create this new kind of creature, unlike what these creatures started as. The big takeaway from this is that there is no thought, no intention, no direction in any of this. Evolution isn't intentional. It isn't a development in response to a need. It's an impersonal, unthinking, undirected series of random beneficial mutations gaining genetic information, randomly improving, and ultimately changing a species. However, what do we see in this article? Well, to start, 
we see that the only kind of evolution to get from us to poor, poor Mindy is something poorly termed microevolution. This is simply changes within the kind. We started as humans, Mindy is shown as a human, so evolution didn't actually occur here. All they show is changes inside of humanity. We started human, we're still human, just deformed compared to what we are today. And they're not predicting that we change into some new species or kind, just that we're now deformed. Second, are these changes actually beneficial to survival? Is a hand permanently grasped in a claw or an arm permanently bent or a hunched back, are these beneficial to survival? To be totally fair, a few of these predicted changes could have some benefit. The thicker skull to protect the brain from radio waves could be beneficial. Now, that would depend on the concept that radio waves are detrimental to the brain and the concept that bone stops or greatly limits the harmful radio waves from passing through. If either or both of those are true, then sure, this mutation could potentially be beneficial. And the same could be said for the second eyelid. I could see that being a beneficial thing. Maybe in addition to limiting blue light, it could whisk away an eyelash or crud in the eye. But if this is a non-movable eyelid, just a, uh, just a skin, well, that's called a cataract. And even if it were to block blue light, that would not be beneficial. And how would this change how we see everything? How would the removal of the stimulation of the brain, you know, key to our body clocks timing day and night, affect our ability to function day to day? Would this reduction in stimulation cause us to be a population of narcoleptics? Would it cause us to be less aware due to being in a half-sleep type of malaise? Would this really be the fittest version of humanity? Now, beyond these issues with the theory thus far, they seem to not understand that an injury to a person does not pass to the next generation. If I lose an eye or cut off a finger and then have a kid, that kid will not be born missing an eye or with a finger gone. His physical changes do not get coded into the DNA, you know, the genetic code. Likewise, just because we build up our muscles in certain ways, it doesn't automatically pass to the next generation. A bodybuilder's child won't be born a muscle-bound beast monster. So a hunchbacked or hunched back, arch neck, larger neck, muscled, clawed hands, and bent elbows, those are nothing but physical injuries. In no way would those traits ever pass to the next generation. This was actually a theory early in the development of the evolution fantasy, but this theory was quickly disproven. Finally, as I stated, beside the few I mentioned, these other mutations aren't actually beneficial, at least not to survival. A hunchbacked person with an arched neck with permanent claws and bent arms would only survive because those of us that aren't mutated would take care of them in some way. These, like other disabilities today, require some sort of accommodations on the part of humanity in order to survive in the world. The more dramatic the disability or deformation, the more accommodations are needed in order to ensure survival. Holding a cell phone or having arms locked into a pent position aren't actually beneficial in the wild. Those, if left to survive on their own, wouldn't. They, they, they couldn't. And let's be honest, the reality is that it would be much more difficult to find a mate if you had these deformities. So this quote-unquote evolution that they're claiming is, in fact, a needs-based, highly directed form of selective evolution. It's not random mutations. It's very specific. Furthermore, it's not survival of the fittest. It's survival of the preferred. 
based on very simple, very biased criteria, which they plugged into a computer model. And we all know how I feel about computer models. This is not evolution per their own theory. This is a fantasy inside of the fantasy of evolution. In fact, it's fantasies all the way down. So why did the study predict this, and why did they call it evolution when it very clearly isn't evolution in any possible way per their own theory? Well, very simple. Evolution is a theory of whatever you want it to be, because that's what it needs to be. There are constant stories of the latest finds in evolution. I've had about four or five pop up in my feed in the last week alone. And yes, my algorithms funnel them to me, but that doesn't change the fact that they're out there. New information almost constantly. When reading these articles, some are random chaotic chance, theoretical beneficial mutations in undirected natural selection, you know, survival of the fittest. Others are absolutely based on need. The creature needs to have an opposable thumb to grasp things, or needs those lungs in order to breathe on land, so poof, over millions of years, yeah, there they are, just like what they needed. The theory is literally whatever they want needed to be, they get it. We developed eyes because we needed to see. I mean, that's simplifying their grand theory, but that's the boiled down truth of where we got eyes. And they, they can do this because there are no absolutes in this theory. The origin story of the Big Bang is constantly evolving in size, force, timing, etc. And now it's being disputed as even being a real thing. I mean, it's not a real thing. It's a stupid theory. But inside of their own ranks, they're disputing it now because it doesn't work for the rest of their theory. The timeline of 13 plus billion years has grown and grown throughout the years because they need it to grow. They can't make evolution work without enough time to give it the appearance of plausibility. And with each new so-called discovery, they adjust and readjust the timeline within the accepted overall range in order to make things fit. And some would say that this is just science being science. As their theory comes more and more into focus, they must tweak the theory in order to more accurately represent the facts. But that's the problem. They're just lining things up. They're selecting the best age for something based on where their theory says it'll fit. They use the survival of the fittest beneficial random mutation theory of evolution when needed, and the highly directed, almost willed version of evolution when needed then. Did you know that the whale started as a sea-dwelling creature? Decided it wanted to live on land, so it grew legs and turned into a freaky version of a wolf-like creature, and then decided it liked water better. So it dove back in the sea, dumped the legs and fangs and fur, and we have the whale. That's literally the narrative they want us to believe. And this is called science. And every fossil they find, every headline they publish stating that a new piece of the overall puzzle has been discovered bolsters the idea to the mass public that this is science, that evolution is science. And this doesn't just affect the unwashed pagan masses. This affects Christians as well. Christians that absolutely believe the Bible, but absolutely believe the alleged science and either just ignore the fact that the twain can't possibly work at the same time or mash them together in a form of theistic evolution, such as the gap theory or the day-age theory, all allegedly based on scientific discovery, all ridiculous and not at all biblical or even plausible. Even Billy Graham, when asked, stated that we all know that dinosaurs existed long before humans, and that it really didn't matter if we believed in young earth or millions of years. Unfortunately, Billy ran in a very narrow lane, the Gospels, and he did so very well, but when he stepped outside of that lane, he made a variety of theological blunders. And this idea that we can mix evolution with biblical creation is one such blunder. 
I'll never say that you must believe in a young earth, six literal day creation, in order to be saved, but I will say that to not believe the very beginning of the Bible calls into serious question the entirety of the rest of the Bible and begs the question, what else have you chosen to and not to believe? The Bible isn't the golden corral of books. We can't just hit the sections we like and either be picky about or completely ignore the other areas. Either we believe that the Bible is God's word given to us by the infallible, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Holy Spirit, and has been divinely protected to say exactly what it's supposed to say, or we believe that it's a fallible book that is reliant on man's wisdom in order to truly decipher and understand what it meant to say. I'm of the opinion that if the Bible couldn't be protected by God and relies on man to clear up the confusing mess that man left behind, he's not much of a God, not really worth my following or worshiping. I'm looking for the all-powerful sovereign God. Anyone seen him? So, I don't know if this study was done as tongue-in-cheek or not, but I know I've seen this story multiple places now, and knowing how amazing of a job has been done convincing the world population that if science says something, it must be true— I mean, just look at the debacle of the last couple of years. This kind of study and conclusion is going to just be accepted by Christians and non-Christians alike as scientifically plausible without giving it a second thought. And sadly, as I'm finding out, those that can and will knowledgeably dispute this nonsense theory of evolution are few and far between. Most have no ability to counter any argument made with regard to evolution. Others just don't want to venture into the fray. But as I've recently described this theory, it's like the old Western movie sets. The bad guy dressed all in black comes riding into town, and people are peeking out of all the shops and buildings on the main street. But were we to look behind those building fronts, there's nothing but some flimsy two-by-fours propping up the facade. This is evolution. It's got the appearance of a possible theory. It seems like it has the answers and the proof and the science. But all it takes to destroy it is to just dig a little bit past the surface, and then the theory falls apart completely. There's nothing propping up the claims at all. I've done, and I plan to continue to do, a number of segments concerning evolution in this podcast. As Christians, we need to push back against this nefarious, faith-crushing theory and call it out for what it is, and help others see the ride that they've been taken for. But to do that, we must know what to look for. We must think critically and logically, and we must question every claim that's being casually tossed out for public consumption. My hope is that this podcast is helping you to do just that. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com, or increasingly, I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.